0: Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us. Uh, If you have a Bible, if you want to turn to 1 John chapter 2, uh, as Steve just read, we'll be in verses 1 through 2 this morning. And as you do so, I want to take a little poll of the room. So raise your hand uh, if you would consider yourself to be handy You're fairly adept at fixing stuff. Okay, hands down. Raise your hand if, when you try to fix stuff, you just make things much worse all right? I'm in this ladder camp, all right? And uh, so anyone who's ever tried to fix something with me knows that is uh, what I'm good at. I'm really good at being bad at fixing stuff. And uh, so that's one of my spiritual gifts. And uh, so whatever drive, whatever DNA, whatever discipline it is that makes someone handy, I don't have that. I got skipped over that. I am pretty good at reading and writing. And I used to be somewhat athletic. And that's like it for me. I don't have any other skills uh, whatsoever, and so I am not good at fixing stuff. Just this past week, I took down some blinds, and, uh, and I was going to try to uh, replace the string. The, spring, the string had broken, and so I took down the blinds and tried to fix it, and that's why I don't have blinds on that window now, because I, not only could I not fix it, but I couldn't even rehang it. And uh, uh, I once flooded my garage whenever I tried to fix my water heater. I once flooded a kitchen whenever I tried to fix a sink. And so I'm just not good at uh, fixing stuff. Whatever the project is, I just tend to make it worse. Kind of like a toddler trying to clean up a mess. That's uh, That's kind of me. Did you know that there is actually a name for this phenomenon, the phenomenon that is when you try to fix something and you actually make it worse. And the name of the phenomenon is actually called the Cobra Effect, which sounds super cool. That's like a band name or something, the Cobra uh, Effect. Why is it called the Cobra Effect? It's called the Cobra Effect because of something that occurred in 19th century India. At the time... Uh, the British Empire was attempting to uh, colonize um, uh, uh, Delhi, and uh, and so in the process of this, they realized there were a number of snake bites. And uh, and there there was this rising number of fatal snake bites. And so they had this brilliant idea that they're gonna offer a bounty on venomous snakes. And so every venomous snake that you bring, you get a certain number of pounds or whatever it is. And so you get this this money for every cobra in particular that uh, you were to bring in. Well, as you can imagine, you have all of a sudden this marketplace for cobras. And so you have some crafty capitalists there in India who decide, we're gonna breed cobras. And so they begin to breed cobras and they begin to sell them to the British government and then the British government gets wind of what's happening and so they shut down the program and they say, we're no longer gonna offer bounties for every snake that you bring in. Well, then what happens? You have all of these cobra farms and people have no way to make a quick buck off of the cobra, so what do they do? You wanna guess? Release them into the wild. Exponentially more snakes within Delhi than there were prior to this. This is the cobra effect. This is the way that I approach any sort of home improvement sort of project. And so I mentioned that for two reasons this morning. Number one, I have a list of things I need to do at my house. If any of you are handy and want to come over on a Saturday, I could use the help. But more importantly, because this is a danger of the text that we're going to read this morning. The Cobra Effect is a very real danger to the way that we read this text. There is a problem in our text. This problem, we've actually seen it over the past couple of weeks, and that problem is sin. But there could be a tendency in your mind, in my mind, in your heart, in my heart, to, to think, the way that I'm going to deal with that is I'm just going to get in there I'm gonna white knuckle this thing. I'm gonna roll up my sleeves. I'm gonna just get to work and just kill this sin in my own strength, with my own flesh, with laws and rules and whatever it might be. And all that you've done is you've just made things worse. You've done the cobra effect. You've just simply tried to deal with one sin by replacing it with another sin. So there's going to be two ways as we look at 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 through 2, two ways that we can misinterpret and thus misapply our text this morning. One way is for us to look at this problem of sin and think this isn't that big of a deal, but the other way is for us to say, you know what, I'll just deal with it. Neither of those are the appropriate response. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in together and see what the appropriate response actually is. I want to ask just first that you would spend a couple of seconds just praying for yourself, that the Lord would give you um, uh, attentive hearts and minds this morning, free you from distractions, And would you pray that for those around you as well, whether they're family or friends or strangers, that the Lord would give us a collective desire to hear and to heed his word. And then would you pray for me that I might be faithful and bold in proclaiming God's word as I should. So Father, we're grateful that you are a good God who gives good gifts and you've given us the gift of your spirit and you've given us your scripture. So I pray this morning that you would incline our uh, hearts, you would open our eyes that we might behold the glory of your word and the glory of your son so that we might run from sin and run to Jesus. We pray these things in his name, amen. Let's look at uh, verse 1 of 1 John chapter 2. Which says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I want to start with that first little phrase, my little Children. This is the first use of a phrase that will actually permeate the entire book of 1 John. So we're going to see it over and over and over again. We'll see it quite a bit over the next few months. So let me give you just a few examples of, uh, uh, of just how ubiquitous this uh, phrase is throughout the book. Let me give you one example from each of the subsequent chapters. In chapter 3, verse 18, it says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Chapter 4, verse 4, little children, you're from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In chapter 5, verse 21, in fact, the very last verse of the entire book of 1 John, it says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, that obviously is not referring to physical kids, but rather to spiritual children from John's perspective excuse me, we actually see the church referred to as children in two different ways in uh, in the book of 1 John. There are all the little children passages, such as what we're reading t- today, and then uh, some of those that I just mentioned, uh, and then there's also a handful of texts that talk about the church as children of God. So the people to whom John is writing, and by extension, us as well, are uh, children in at least two senses, Three, if they happen to be physical kids as well, but the two senses that all of us who love and trust Jesus are children uh, in the first one being children of God. Now, that's huge theologically. We can't uh, overestimate uh, uh, the importance of that theologically, and we will get into that as we move through 1 John, but that's not the primary meaning here in, uh, in chapter 2, so we're going to skip over that. The meaning here is in this second sense, and that is that John functions as their spiritual father. That's the meaning here in 1 John chapter 2. So as we move through the text, I want you to notice the pastoral, the paternal heart that permeates the book. There is this parental love and concern and grace and hope that John has for those that are reading the book. But along with that, there's also this fatherly hardness, this seriousness, this strictness, this severity when it comes to the danger of false teaching and other forms of sin that uh, John is going to address. So that's my little children. Let's look at the next phrase. He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. We've mentioned this before, but there are several purpose statements in the book of 1 John. This also permeates uh, the letter. So throughout the letter, multiple times, John writes something like, I am writing this so that fill in the blank. I'm writing this so that Fill in the blank. Why does he write? Well, he writes for the church's satisfaction. We've seen that. He writes to promote their joy. He writes for their security. That is to protect them from false teaching. He writes for their safety, to provide assurance to them. And then he also writes for their sanctification, to prevent sin. And this latter purpose, their sanctification, the prevention of sin is what we see in this verse. And this call to holiness This call to sanctification, to obedience, to righteousness, again, it permeates 1 John. One of the things that you'll notice about 1 John is a lot of things permeate 1 John because 1 John is a very cyclical sort of book. He says the same thing, and then he takes it from another perspective and says the same thing, and then from another perspective and says the same thing. And so, uh, for example, in verses 3 through 6, which we'll look at next week, we read this. And by this we know... Of this call to righteousness, to obedience, to holiness, to sanctification throughout the book. But we'll really spend the most, the bulk of our time in chapter 3, where we read this in verses 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. That's scary, that's maybe a little bit confusing, all of this language about no one who's born of God keeps on sinning, but don't worry, we're gonna unpack it whenever we get there in a couple of months. For now, I just want us to grasp the seriousness of sin which permeates 1 John. One of John's primary purposes in writing this book is that we would see the horror and the grossness of sin and that we would see that the horror and grossness of sin stands in stark contrast to the holiness and glory of God. So John writes that we might see the horror and the grossness of sin and the holiness and glory of God. We read something similar about this call for sanctification when we looked at Romans over the past couple of years. Romans 6, 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And a couple of chapters later, Romans eight thirteen. for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. As, uh, as the Puritan John Owen said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. In other words, sin is serious, so sanctification should be serious. Sin isn't this harmless little garter snake that you play with, Sin is like an angry cobra. So listen to Jesus as he describes the appropriate response to sin in Matthew 5, 29 through 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, that doesn't mean that we go around plucking out our eyes and cutting off our hands as if the goal is that we would look like pirates or something like that. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is, though, he's commanding us to do whatever is necessary, whatever you have to do to mortify sin, to kill sin, to put it to death. So let me ask you this question Do you actually hate your sin? Or do you coddle it, do you love it, do you like it, do you tolerate it? Before you're saved, sin is like this telephone and it's always ringing and you have to answer it. In fact, you might say that you're perpetually on the phone with sin, every second of every day. But as a believer, You're empowered to not answer that phone, to not give in to temptation, to check the caller ID, to see that it's sin, and to let it go to voicemail. Now let me tell you what this doesn't mean, what John doesn't mean here in 1 John chapter 2, what he doesn't mean, and then we'll wrap up this section. John doesn't mean, and this text doesn't mean, that you'll ever be fully free of sin, this side of glory, We know that from a biblical theology that looks at all of the passages of Scripture. Your flesh is always opposed to the Spirit, and you'll never completely kill your flesh. The battle with residual sin is going to be lifelong. So this isn't Christian perfectionism. The expectation is sanctification. The expectation is not that we would ever actually arrive at sinlessness, the second thing this doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we pursue sanctification by the law. That's that cobra effect that we talked about. Just white knuckle it with begrudging obedience. There's a way to read this 1 John passage with this crushing weight of expectation as if God is simply giving us another law to press down upon us. He gives us this no- another law to obey and he's waiting to punish us if and when we slip up but that's not the appropriate response and it also doesn't mean that we should become morbidly introspective spend all of our time looking for sins to eradicate there should be occasional introspection in our life but we shouldn't be obsessed by it maybe that's you maybe you're kind of stuck on this perpetual treadmill of introspection this perpetual treadmill of despair because you keep thinking about how dirty you feel, how unholy you feel, how sinful you feel. That's a very pessimistic, that's a very paralyzing version, distortion of Christianity. That isn't what this verse entails. But neither does it entail swinging the pendulum the other way, which is another danger that I see in evangelical culture. People who are so out of touch with their own hearts, people who are so out of touch with residual sin that they just neglect it that they're always quote-unquote fine. You ask them how they're doing, oh, I'm fine. They never do any introspection. They never do any mortification. They never do any confession of sin. They hide behind this facade of forced smiles and fake niceness. Well, neither of those ends of the spectrum are the goal. So this passage isn't promoting Christian perfectionism. This passage isn't promoting sanctification by legalism. And it isn't promoting excessive introspection. What does it mean? It means that Christians should take sanctification seriously because we are, as Luther would say, simul justus et peccator. We are simultaneously sinners and saints. We still sin. That will always be a part. Until we die and are resurrected, there will always be sin as long as we have this flesh So we still sin, but our primary identity is not as sinners, but saints, sons of God. So we should long to resist, to mortify sin. And God has empowered his children to do just that. But the way that we pursue sanctification, the way that we resist sin, the way that we mortify sin is not by constantly focusing on sin, but rather by focusing on Christ by clinging to the promises of scripture, by trusting in the power of the spirit and resting in particular in the reality of the next phrase. So let's look at that now. It says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Another poll, raise your hand if your car has an airbag. Whoa, you guys are rich, all right? Let not the rich boast in his riches. All right. Thus far in life, I've never actually needed an airbag. I've been in two accidents, neither of which were my fault, and in neither did I have an airbag, so an airbag didn't deploy, and obviously I'm okay uh, right now. Um, You might be tempted to read this verse kind of like an airbag. It's hypothetical safety. You generally don't need it. Most of the time you're driving down the road, you don't think about your airbag. But it's nice to have if there's an accident. You might read this verse as if that's what John is saying. Jesus is like an airbag. You don't generally need him, but man, when you occasionally slip up, if you happen to get in some sort of moral accident, well, then Jesus is there. Hypothetically, he's there for you. He's there if you need him, but hopefully you never actually need him. That's obviously not what this passage is saying at all. When John writes, if anyone sins, he doesn't mean that some might not sin, as if he is uh, talking about moral perfectionism. We know that, by the way, on the basis of last week's text, which told us to confess our sins. And it says that if we say we have no sin, then we're liars. Not to get too technical, but in, uh, in Greek grammar, there are various ways to express these if-then statements. At least one of the ways that uh, you can do that implies that the outcome is going to be unlikely. Now, if that's what John, if that's the particular Greek construction that John would have uh, used, then maybe we would be tempted to think that he's saying, if anyone sins, dot, 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 and by the way, some might not sin, but that's not the construction that John uses. John actually uses a construction to show that the outcome is actually probable, that he expects you to sin. So why doesn't John just write when anyone sins? He could have just simply taken that uh, particular misinterpretation away from us completely. Why does he write if anyone sins? Why doesn't he just write when anyone does sin? Well, my answer is, I don't know, to some degree. But I think what's happening is uh, if, uh, uh, I think what's happening there is, is John is trying to walk this theological tightrope, if you will. He doesn't want in any way to express this sort of reality that uh, because sin is inevitable, that therefore it's excusable, it's acceptable, or something like that. He can't dismiss, he can't whitewash sin. He can't say, well, it's unavoidable, so don't worry about it, which is what some might infer if it were to simply uh, say when anyone sins. So he doesn't want to be misunderstood in that direction as if the inevitability of sin implies the acceptability of sin. Because that's not true. Sin is serious. It's grave. It's horrific. There's no diminishing the severity of sin in 1 John. Until we die, we will continue to struggle with sin. And yet that reality, the reality that we will continue to struggle with residual sin, doesn't in any sense excuse or justify our sin, especially Because God has empowered his children to walk in obedience. We have the will of God expressed in scripture. We have the spirit of God if we've been born again. We have new hearts. We have community. We have all of these different things that God has given to his people so that we might walk in holiness. So John has to kind of do two things with this passage. On one hand, he has to confront, he has to convict those who are apathetic towards sin. Who coddle sin, who like their sin, who don't hate their sin. He has to confront them, he has to convict them, he has to call them to sanctification, but at the same time, he has to comfort those who recognize I still struggle with sin. I'm contrite, I'm repentant, I'm trusting in the gospel, I hate my sin, I long for sanctification. So he has to comfort this second group of people, and he does so by reminding us that we have an advocate. Now, this is a really interesting word in Greek. It's parakletos, and uh, it's used five times in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, all of them in John's writing, this is the only usage in 1 John, all of the others occur in the Gospel of John, and in all of the others, it refers not to Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, but instead, it refers to the Holy Spirit, and it's not translated as advocate in those passages. It's actually translated as helper. Let me give you one example of that. John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. But we see in our passage this morning, 1 John chapter two, that John is going to take this term and apply it to Jesus. When it comes to sin, Jesus is our helper. He is our advocate. And his advocacy for us with the Father is based on his status. Notice there that adjective at the end, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Because he is righteous, he can advocate with the Father for us. Let me give you an illustration of this. In, uh, in 2007... I went to Israel uh, for the first time, and uh, I was in seminary at the time. I'd ha- taken a couple of semesters of, uh, of Old Testament, and I'd taken a couple semesters of Hebrew. So I obviously assumed, I don't need a guide. I can figure this thing out on my own. And so some buddies and I, uh, we went over there. We rented a car. We just kind of drove around and uh, got lost, nearly got shot, all of these kinds of things that you would expect because of my arrogance. And, uh, uh, but on, before we went over there, I had an, an Old Testament professor who heard that we were going to do this and try to just go see Israel on our own. And he laughed at us and he said, well, if you get into trouble, I know a guy over there. He's a, a shop owner in Jerusalem. He's kind of like the guy in the city. So if you need anything, just uh, check with him. His name is Shaban and told us where the shop was. So when we get to Jerusalem, we go by Shaban's shop and, uh, and we get there and I mentioned this, this professor and, uh, and so uh, Shaban offers us some tea Which is a really cool thing and uh, and then he just sits there and he talks with us and he tells us stories and so forth so we ended up staying there quite a while we uh, we bought some souvenirs we did some shopping and while we're there this one guy walks in and he's looking super depressed so Shabon goes up to him and says hey how are you enjoying the city and the guy said well I just got robbed so I'm not having a great day and Shabon looks at him and he says where did this happen and the guy tells him where it happened when did it happen And the guy told him, well, approximately 30 minutes ago or whatever it was, and he says, what exactly was taken? He says, my wallet, what was in your wallet? Well, this and this and this. Siobhan looks at him and says, come back to my shop in two hours. Go see the sites, go look around, whatever it is, in two hours. Now my buddies and I had overheard that. We had plans for the afternoon. We canceled those plans. I wanted to figure out what was going on. So we came back in like an hour and a half. So we were like, I don't want to miss it. Whatever is going to happen, it's going to be incredible. So we come back an hour and a half early. And sure enough, this guy walks in. He walks up to Shaban. Shaban looks at him, pulls out the guy's wallet from his pocket, hands it to him, and says, I apologize that some of my countrymen are uh, rude or disrespectful. And we just stare at him. We're like, what in the world just happened? Apparently, in the span of two hours, Shaban had managed to track down the thief and convince him to give the wallet back. Why? Because Shaban is like the godfather of the city or something like that. I don't know if he's ex-Massad or something like that, but for whatever reason, because he's honored, because he's feared, because he's respected, he is able to advocate, he's able to help this guy. That's what John is saying about Jesus. Because of Jesus' status, he's respected, he's feared, he's righteous. Therefore, he can advocate for us. Now, I want you to imagine another scenario. Imagine, if you will, that this guy would have left the shop, he had gone back to that particular gate there in Jerusalem where that wallet was stolen, and he had tried in his own effort to get his wallet back. What would have happened Well, maybe if he's like Liam Neeson, he's getting the wallet back, but otherwise, you remember the cobra effect? That's what's happening. This guy's gonna get beaten up or worse. Why? Because he's not the helper. He's not righteous. So when we try to clean ourselves up, when we try to apply what he's just said at the first half of the verse without uh, without regard to the second half of the verse, we miss it. If we try to say, Uh, that we're not to sin, and we try to do that in our own efforts and leave out Jesus. We leave out our advocate. We miss it. We miss it completely. We misunderstand the solution to sin isn't for us to try harder and do better, but rather to run to the one who can help because he is our helper. He is our advocate. He is righteous. And so he and he alone helps our unrighteousness, especially because of what verse two says. So let's look at that. It says, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's look at that first phrase. He is the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is a a strange word. Most of us probably didn't use it in the car ride up here today. It's not a word that we tend to use all that often. It's actually not even a word that we see in Scripture all that often, at least in the English Bible. It appears only four times in the New Testament Twice in this book, 1 John, once in Romans, and once in the book of Hebrews, and that's it, at least in the ESV. So what does it mean? What does propitiation mean? In order to understand that, we need to first consider the background usage of the term which we get from the Old Testament. See if I remember when Indiana Jones found the Ark of the Covenant in that big snake pit, you remember that? And then it melted some Nazi faces off. All right. Well, long before that happened, all right, the Ark of the Covenant was where? Anybody know? Not like a Costco or something. In the temple, all right? Not a trick question. It sat in the temple, all right? Uh, and, uh, And so it was in the temple. And if you were to go back and read about the Ark of the Covenant... Uh, above the ark was something called the mercy seat. And if you were to go back and read uh, the, about the mercy seat in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you would see the same root word for the mercy seat, which we see here translated as propitiation in First John. Well, what's so significant about the mercy seat? Well, 364 days a year, the high priest couldn't enter into the Holy of Holies. He couldn't approach. The, uh, the innermost section of the temple where the Ark of, uh, of the Covenant rests, where God was said to dwell. But one day a year, the Day of Atonement, in, uh, in uh, Hebrew it's Yom Kippur, one day of the year, the priest would wash himself, the priest would put on holy garments, he would offer a sacrifice for himself and his family, and then offer another sacrifice for the sins of his people, and he would take that blood and he would sprinkle it and where would he sprinkle it? You probably guess, on the mercy seat. That's what he would do. He'd take the blood and he would sprinkle it there in the Holy of Holies, on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat. By the way, have any of you ever heard a story about how the high priest would tie a, 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 belt, a, a rope around his belt or uh, around his ankle or something like that in case he died? Or is there any of you ever heard that? All right. That, by the way, is an urban legend, all right? That doesn't appear in the Bible. It doesn't appear in the Apocrypha. It doesn't appear in the Mishnah or the Talmud or anything like that. Its earliest appearance is actually in the 13th century. So rather than emails about deposed Nigerian priests, ancient medieval church folk like to just forward letters about high priests or something like that. So that's not true. But back to the mercy seat. What does this have to do with Jesus? Well, by his blood, atonement has been made So, rather than the earthly temple, rather than the ark or the holy of holies, he, Jesus Christ, is now where God and man meet together. He is where man meets with God because he is fully God and fully man. He fulfills this imagery of the mercy seat the place where atonement is made. So that's kind of the background imagery of the term. Propitiation carries this rich Old Testament picture of sacrifice and atonement, but we still haven't really addressed what the word itself actually means. We've just talked about the background imagery of it. In order to really address what it means, we need to know that some English translations actually don't have the word propitiation. Some English translations might have expiation, What's the difference, propitiation versus expiation? Well, in simple terms, expiation deals with the removal of sin, whereas propitiation deals with the satisfaction of wrath. So let me ask you this question, which one is it? Theologically, which one occurs at the cross? Which one occurs with the death of Christ? Is it the removal of sin, or is it the satisfaction of God's wrath? Well, the answer is, it's both. It's actually a both and. We see both of those things occur. Not only are our sins forgiven in Christ, but also God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. It's a both and. Sin is forgiven and wrath is satisfied. You might think, for whatever reason, you might think that wrath sounds strange. It's out of date, like rotary phones or taping something on a VCR or people who say things like whoopsie daisies or something like that, right? You might think that we should, surely humanity has evolved beyond thinking of God as being wrathful. That's an antiquated concept. God is just love and smiles and hugs and kisses and those kinds uh, of things. But the reality is until humanity evolves past sin, we will not evolve past wrath because God's wrath is his good and holy and righteous and just response to man's sin and you and I, and everyone else in the world, is sinful, is evil apart from Christ. And God's wrath doesn't merely go away if you just ignore it, right? I wake up sometimes and I feel moody. And eventually, by the end of the day or by the next day or something like that, it just goes away. God's wrath is not like that. It doesn't eventually dissipate because God's wrath is righteous. It's holy, it's good, it's the right response. It isn't a feeling or a mood that will eventually dissipate. His wrath isn't like a cold that will eventually heal. It's like terminal cancer that only gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Rather than going away, God's wrath is simply stored up as we increase our sin apart from Christ. So this is the problem. The problem isn't just sin. The problem is God's response to sin, which is wrath and our subsequent condemnation, damnation. That's the problem, being under the wrath of a holy, just, righteously jealous and righteously angry God. So propitiation provides a solution to these problems. You see, sacrifice is necessary because payment, the only payment for sin is death. That was the promise and the curse within the context of the garden. The wages of sin is death. Death, there must be death, and there must be blood in order for there to be satisfaction of divine justice. So here's where you see kind of the meaning of propitiation and the background imagery of propitiation begin to come together. Throughout the Old Testament, there was this elaborate sacrificial system set up. You would sacrifice birds and bulls and goats and lambs and so forth. All of these things were sacrificed, but none of them could actually forgive sin None of them could actually satisfy God's wrath, which is why each and every year they would have to offer more and more and more sacrifices. Every year there was a Yom Kippur. Every year there was a day of atonement. Why? Because there's more sin the next year. And because those sacrifices didn't actually atone, There was no end. It was an infinite loop of sin and sacrifice and sin and sacrifice and sin and sacrifice and sin and sacrifice and sin and sacrifices and sacrifices could never cease because sin never ceased and the sacrifices weren't sufficient to atone. In fact, those sacrifices were never actually intended to forgive and satisfy God's wrath. They were instead intended to point out the severity of sin and point us to a future sacrifice that was actually propitiatory that's Jesus. The sacrifices were just shadows to point to the substance who is Jesus. Jesus is the new temple where God and man meet together, where wrath is satisfied, where sin is removed. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, is where God and man are reconciled so that they might dwell together, which means there are no more sacrifices to be made. The sacrificial system has been rendered obsolete, bankrupt. It's gone out of business. The altar is now permanently closed. The altar is permanently closed, but here's the good news. The temple is permanently open. The temple is forever open. In the past, only one day a year, only one person in the entire nation could enter into the Holy of Holies. But now, in Christ, every single one of us has access to the Father. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, 366 on a leap year. There is no ritualistic bath. There's no sacred clothing you need to wear. There's no sacrifice you need to offer. In Christ, you have access to the Father, which is the good news of the gospel. You get God. Not just the gifts of God, you get the giver of those gifts Himself. So your sins are forgiven and God's wrath is satisfied. This is what it means that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And this also helps us understand why it would be such a horrible misinterpretation and misapplication of the previous verse, which calls for our sanctification to think that John is simply telling us to clean ourselves up. When he tells us not to sin, that to to, to, uh, think, to infer, that he's telling us to clean ourselves up by our own strength, by our own rules. We might as well build a new new temple. We might as well start sacrificing goats because that's what our legalism, that's what our self-righteousness does. It neglects the only actual righteousness that God accepts, that of his son. So if you wanna know how Christ is our advocate, if you wanna know how Christ is our helper, As we just read, if you want to know why we should run to Him when we sin, if you want to know the basis of our justification and the basis for our sanctification, it's the propitiation of Christ. The reality that He has fully forgiven our sin and fully satisfied the wrath of God. And rather than mere rules, don't touch that, don't do that. The reality of God's love, the reality of Christ's sacrifice is what should stir you up to obey what we just read and to pursue repentance and sanctification. Let's move on to the last phrase, where he writes, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now this is a bit confusing. What in the world does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus has forgiven the sins of everyone in the world? Well, definitely not. We will see as we move through 1 John that John will make it very clear throughout the letter that those who do not love and trust Jesus still abide under God's wrath. So what does it mean? I want to point out a couple of passages that will help us to understand what it means. Let's look at uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 14 first, where it says, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior Now notice the way that he uses world there and uses savior there. This doesn't mean that Jesus saves everyone in the world. When it says that Jesus is the savior of the world, that doesn't mean that he saves everyone in the world. That's a false teaching called universalism. And 1 John will explicitly reject that as we will see. So what does it mean? It means that anyone in the world who is saved is only saved through Jesus. There is no other savior as it will say in the book of Acts, there is no other name uh, under, uh, under heaven by which uh, we must call upon. Likewise, when chapter two, 1 John two, says that Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, that doesn't mean that Christ has satisfied God's wrath toward every single sinner. If you do not love and trust Jesus, you still abide under the wrath of God. You need to hear that, you need to understand that. We'll flesh that out over the next couple of months. Let's look at one other Johannine passage to help us understand what this does mean. This time it's actually from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 49 through 42. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now let's put verse 52 in 1 John 2.2 on the screen uh, together. And notice the similarity there. It's the same idea. So the whole world in First John doesn't mean every single person in the world. Rather, it's a similar idea to John chapter 11. It means all the children of God scattered throughout the whole world. The fact that Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world doesn't mean that everyone in the world is saved. What does it mean? Well, it means two things. Two things John is intending here. I think the first one's primary. The second one is secondary. The first one is that Jesus is the only sacrifice. He's the only propitiatory sacrifice for anyone in the world. There is no other currency. There is no other sacrifice that will be accepted. You can sacrifice a hundred billion goats or bulls or whatever it might be, and that will not suffice. Jesus is the only sacrifice for anyone in the world. There is no other. Has he himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the first, that's the primary meaning. The secondary meaning is that Jesus' sacrifice is offered freely to the whole world. In other words, not just to the apostles, not just to the Jews, not just to the particular first century Christians to whom John is writing, this particular church, whether it's Ephesus or whatever it might be, not just to Parkway, there are no ethnic. There are no geographical, there are no racial or linguistic or socioeconomic boundaries to the gospel. In other words, salvation is available to any who believe. Though we know from a handful of other passages, uh, in fact, more than a handful, multiple handfuls of other passages, that the only ones who will actually believe are those who are elected and called and regenerated by the Spirit and thus be saved. So now you see this sort of outward thrust implication to this passage there's this inward nuance to the text we're called to confess we're called to repent of our sins so there's this this uh, this sense this nuance uh, in which the text is calling us to, uh, to to be inward to do some introspection there's also this upward focus as the text calls us to be reminded of the reality that Christ is our advocate and propitiatory sacrifice. There's this worshipful upward focus of the text, but there's also this outward focus as well, as we recognize that the children of God are scattered throughout the world from every race and tongue and nation and tribe, and so we shouldn't hoard the promises of God for ourselves, as if his love is finite and he might run out. No, his love is infinite, his grace is infinite, Christ's sacrifice is infinite in regards to its efficacy for any who would believe. So we should be free to love and serve as we have been loved and served. In fact, loving others is actually where 1 John is going to go, as we'll see in our text over the next couple of weeks. But first, I want to wrap up this particular passage this morning by kind of recapping the main points of the text. And there's two in particular. The first one that you and I should be serious about sin. The Bible is serious about sin. God is serious about sin. So serious about sin that his son died a bloody, horrific death in order to pay the payment for sin. So you and I should be serious about sin. If you're cavalier, when it comes to sin, you don't understand sin. If you deny the existence of sin in your own heart and mind, you don't know yourself and you don't understand sin. If you ignore it, if you're casual about it, if you think it's not really that big of a deal, it's just a small little sin, a slight little transgression. Or if you try to clean yourself up, you try to manhandle your sin, or if you respond to sin with despair and shame and fear, if any of those things are true, you haven't actually understood the text this morning, Then something is wrong. This letter was written to awaken us, to the grossness and horror of sin and to the glory and holiness of God and to the freedom that we have in Christ to grow in sanctification. And although we will never be fully free from the effects of sin until the resurrection, we are empowered by the Spirit right now to resist any individual temptation towards sin. That's the first application. The second application is this, that we might run to Jesus. When you do sin, and hear me, you will sin. You do sin. When you sin, to not run from Jesus, but to run to Jesus. To not run away from Him, but to run to Him. And to not just try harder, to not just commit to being better, but instead to cry out, to confess, to humble yourself, to position yourself under the waterfall of the promises that God has made to His people because Christ is righteous, He is your intercessor, your helper, and he's satisfied all of God's demands on your behalf. Back to the opening illustration, some of us in this room are handy, some of us are not when it comes to home improvement, but none of us are when it comes to dealing with sin. When it comes to sin, there is only one who can clean us, fix us, and that one is Christ. He is the only propitiation, he is the advocate for us. So let's consider Christ as we prepare our hearts for communion. I'm going to pray as the men come forward to distribute the elements. Father, I thank you for the text this morning. I pray that you would help us, Lord. There is a a danger as we read this text that there would be some who would respond to the call to not sin. And think, okay, I'm just going to do better. I'm going to try harder. They're going to neglect the gospel. There's a danger that some would think, well, because I have propitiation, because I have an advocate, because God loves me, therefore I can keep on sinning. There are all these dangers, and I pray that you would just help us by your spirit to avoid those dangers. And that your grace would be the means by which We might walk in obedience, Lord, because your grace really doesn't lead us into sin. Your grace leads us into love and holiness and sanctification. And so I pray that you would help apply your word to our hearts this morning because you're a good father who gives good gifts and you've proven that by giving us this word, giving us your spirit and giving us your son. So it's in his name we pray, amen.